This is a Tuesdays with Merton bonus episode from the archives of the Thomas Merton Center at Bellarmine University. The lecture, titled The Gate of Heaven is Everywhere and presented by Robert Ellsberg, was recorded June 28, 2019 at the 16th General Meeting of the International Thomas Merton Society held at Santa Clara University in California. Let me begin with the word hagiography, writing about saints or holy people. That's a word that has fallen into some disrepute. It's been identified with a particularly saccharine, credulous, and pious style of writing that conforms its subjects to a stereotypical mold, the proverbial plaster saint. Thomas Merton described this figure as a person, quote, without the slightest moral flaw, whose intentions are the noblest, whose words are always the most edifying cliches, fitting the situation with a devastating obviousness that silences even the thought of dialogue. Such saints, he wrote, are presumed to be without humor, as they are without wonder, without feeling, and without interest in the common affairs of mankind. They are always there kissing the leper's sores, just at the very moment when the king and his noble attendants come around the corner and stop in their tracks, mute in admiration. Among his many works, as you know, Thomas Merton contributed two biographies of Trappist saints that fall perilously close to this image. <laughs> In the graph he devised for his own work, he rated these two books respectively as very poor and awful. <laughs> now, if that depiction is what it means to be a saint, close to God but somehow less than fully human, then we might say, to borrow a phrase from Flannery O'Connor, to hell with it. <laughs> but Merton goes on to observe that holiness is really a matter of being more fully human. This implies, quote, a greater capacity for concern, for suffering, for understanding, for sympathy, and also for humor, for joy, for appreciation for the good and beautiful things of life. If this is so, it suggests that it is not so much the word hagiography that needs rehabilitation as the concept of holiness itself. I like to think that I have advanced the cause. Indeed, having written a number of books about saints, I might myself claim the title of hagiographer, if it didn't sound so nerdy. <laughs> Basically, I have attempted to tell the story of men and women who tried in a heroic fashion to follow Christ in the context of their time place, and in doing so, have set a standard of what it means to be a whole or holy human being. In many cases, I've stretched the conventional canon of saints, as you know if you've read any of my books. I don't claim any special authority for doing this. Some years ago, when I was visiting Gethsemane, Brother Patrick Hart of Blessed Memory told me that the monastic community had spent a year reading my book All Saints in the Refectory, and I asked the brothers had expressed any discomfort with some of my selections, thinking of maybe a Vincent van Gogh or a Camus. And he said, well, there were some raised eyebrows of Thomas Merton. <laughs> Perhaps in this conference I can count on a more indulgent audience. In fact, my reflections this morning are prompted by my recent conversation with a high school class who'd been reading Merton. And they asked me two questions, and the first was, do you think Thomas Merton will be canonized? 
The second question was like unto it. Do you think Thomas Merton should be canonized? For now, I will reserve my answer to those questions, except to say that I told these students I thought they were asking the wrong questions. After first reminding them of the difference between being a saint and being a canonized saint, I recall a statement by Simon Weil who said, Today is not nearly enough merely to be a saint, but we must have the saintliness needed by the present moment. In that light, the question is not so much whether Thomas Merton will or should be officially named a saint by the church, but whether he represents a kind of saintliness or holiness needed by the present moment. And that's what I'd like to discuss today. There's no doubt that Merton's life was animated by a quest for holiness, though what that meant was constantly subject to change as he underwent a continuous process of evolution or conversion. We all remember the famous exchange between Merton and his friend Robert Lacks in the Seven Story Mountain soon after Merton's conversion. Lacks asks him what he wants to be now that he's a Catholic. And Merton answers, well, I don't know, I guess I want to be a good Catholic. To which Lacks offers a correction. What you should say is that you want to be a saint. Merton says the question struck him as a little weird. How is he supposed to become a saint? By wanting to, Lacks says simply. All that's necessary to be a saint is to want to be one. Don't you believe that God will make you what he created you to be if you will consent to let him do it? All you have to do is desire it. Much of Merton's subsequent journey can be seen as a response to that challenge. The challenge to go all the way, to be what God had created him to be, subject to a continuously evolving understanding of what that really meant. I'm particularly struck by the way Merton's evolution might be marked by a series of significant epiphanies or mystical breakthroughs. Two of them will be very familiar to you. The first, maybe not so much. This occurred during his April 1940 pilgrimage to Cuba, which he described as one of those medieval pilgrimages, meaning that it was nine-tenths of vacation and one-tenth pilgrimage. <laughs> he describes one of the masses he attended at the Church of St. Francis in Havana. The church was filled with school children. The priest at the altar, quote, seemed to be standing in the exact center of the universe. The words of the credo were spoken, I believe. And as he heard those words, he writes, quote, something went off inside me like a thunderclap. I knew with the utmost, the most absolute and unquestioning certainty that before me, between me and the altar, somewhere in the context of the church, up in the air, but directly before my eyes, was at the same time God in all his essence, all his power, God in the flesh and God in himself, and God surrounded by the radiant faces of the thousands, the millions, the uncountable number of saints, contemplating his glory and praising his holy name. He continues, the unshakable certainty, the clear and immediate knowledge that heaven was right in front of me, struck me like a thunderbolt, went through me like a flash of lightning and seemed to lift me clean off the earth. According to this account from his journal, which he later somewhat adapted and elaborated in the Seven Stories Mountain in the Secular Journal, where he recalls thinking, heaven is right here in front of me. Heaven. Heaven. Now, serious readers of Merton, a company that certainly includes all of you here today, can hardly miss the resonance of this experience with his later famous epiphany of Fourth and Walnut, 
the suddenness of his, quote, clear and immediate knowledge that heaven is right in front of him, the radiant faces of millions of saints praising God's holy name in Havana, which in Louisville give way to a vision of the glory of God, quote, written in us like a pure diamond, blazing with the invisible light of heaven. The language is similar, but there's an obvious difference. This particular experience of awakening to the presence of God in all of his essence doesn't take place on an intersection in Louisville. It's shaped by the context of a Eucharistic celebration, which in turn is a reflection of the beatific banquet, a vision of the millions of saints in heaven contemplating and praising God's holy name. Heaven was right in front of me, right there in the church. Like all of Merton's epiphanies, this has a direct bearing on the direction of his quest for holiness. In other words, it presages a great vocational response, in this case, to enter religious life. He'd been thinking of the Franciscans, but ultimately his heart was won by the Trappist, whom he discovered in an article in the Catholic Encyclopedia. Describing his response to this article, he says, what he read pierced me to the heart like a knife. What wonderful happiness there was then in the world. There were still men on this miserably noisy, cruel earth who tasted the marvelous joy of silence and solitude, who dwelt in forgotten mountain cells and secluded monasteries where the news and desires and appetites and conflicts of the world no longer reached them. The thought of these monasteries, these remote choirs, those cells, those hermitages, those cloisters, those men and their cowls, the poor monks, the men who had become nothing, shattered my heart. In an instant, the desire of those solitudes was wide open within me like a wound. It would not be entirely unfair to dismiss this as a rather romantic response. At this point, Merton had not met a single one of these uh, happy monks. <laughs> Yet when he eventually went on a retreat to the Abbey of Gethsemane, the Trappist Monastery near Bardstown, Kentucky, the experience totally lives up to his expectations. He felt he had found his true home at, light, at last. Note to reader, this would not be the last time he thought that. <laughs> this is the center of America, he wrote. It's an axle around which the whole country blindly turns. This is the cause and reason why the nation is holding together. What he experienced in Gethsemane was an image of the holy life straight out of his experience in the church in Havana where the priest at the altar seemed to be standing in the exact center of the universe. It consisted of reproducing, as much as possible in this life, the business of the saints in heaven, contemplating God's glory and praising God's holy name. Saints in the making, like these monks, were serving the world through their prayers, keeping the world turning without cracking apart. The Abbey's chapel, he writes, was nothing less than the court of the Queen of Heaven. So Merton was admitted as a, as a novice on December 10, 1941, just days after Pearl Harbor. He sought a life of prayer and penance. He desired to give everything. And so he writes, Brother Matthew, locked the gate behind me and I was enclosed in the four walls of my new freedom. In entering the monastery, Merton not only felt he was leaving behind the world and giving up everything, he was also specifically leaving behind a certain Thomas Merton with all his anxious desire to be somebody, his demanding ego, his tendency to sarcasm and scorn for people who didn't meet his standards. With the anonymous monks in their white habits, he intended to drown to the world, to be invisible, to be nobody, 
as he wrote in a letter to his abbot, I want to be a forgotten and unknown saint, hidden in God alone. Didn't, didn't quite go there. The seven-story mountain happened, written, as you like to say, under obedience, and it became an astonishing success selling publisher, I still swoon at the thought of the 600,000 copies in hardback in the first year alone, and Merton was suddenly the most famous monk in America. The irony was not lost on him, and yet his superiors felt his writing had something to offer the world, and they ordered him to keep at it, and so he did, and there followed a stream of books on monasticism and prayer and the spiritual life, and this required a certain adjustment into the idea of being a forgotten saint. Now he wrote, if I'm to be a saint, there's nothing else that I can think of desiring to be. It seems to me I must get there by writing books in a Trappist monastery. If I'm to be a saint, I have not only to be a monk, which is what all monks must do to become saints, but I must also put down on paper what I have become. It may sound simple, but it is not an easy vocation. I think this is a very striking statement of, of Merton's vocation, and I think more revealing than he even knew at the time. As he says, his whole way to holiness was not just to be a monk like other monks, but to be a writing monk. And not just to write books about typical monk topics, but, quote, to put down on paper what I have become. Or perhaps he might better have said, what I am becoming. In other words, to offer something absolutely unprecedented in the annals of monasticism an unvarnished chronicle of his inner life in his ongoing spiritual journey. In 1949, when he wrote those words, he had no idea where his journey would take him and the complexities it would entail, not only for his relationship with his order, but with his reading public. For all the books he would go on to produce in the public mind, he was eternally fixed at the point where his memoir had ended, as a young monk with his cowl pulled over his head, happily convinced that in Joining an austere medieval community, he had fled the modern world, never to return. It was difficult for readers to appreciate that this picture represented only the beginning of Burton's journey as a monk. And perhaps he had left a clue in the Latin motto that concludes his memoir. Maybe you remember. Sic finis libri, non finis quarendi. Here ends the book, but not the searching. One aspect of the book that Merton particularly came to regret was the attitude of pious scorn directed at the world and its unfortunate denizens. He had seemed to regard the monastery as a secluded haven set apart from both the news and desires and appetites and conflicts that bedevil ordinary humanity. In 1948, an errand into Louisville occasioned one of his first trips outside the monastery. In his journal, he noted piously, Going into Louisville the other day, I wasn't struck by anything in particular, although I felt completely alienated from everything in the world and all its activity. While he felt the people were, quote, worthy of sympathizing with, overall he judged the excursion boring. One may assume that he wrote and later published that sentence without irony or embarrassment. It was the sort of attitude most people would expect from a writing monk. It was the attitude that had attracted Merton in the monastery to the monastery in the first place. Yet, what a difference a decade would make. Ten years later, in 1958, he records in his journal the radically different aspect of another errand into Louisville, 
And this is the second of the three great epiphanies I previously referenced. And it inspired one of the most famous passages in all his books, which many of you can probably recite by heart. He writes, on the corner of 4th and Walnut, in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people, that they were mine and I theirs, that we could not be alien to one another, even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation in a special world, the world of renunciation and supposed holiness. The whole illusion of a separate holy existence is a dream. Not that I question the reality of my vocation or my monastic life, but the conception of separation from the world that we have in the monastery too easily represents itself as a complete illusion. The illusion that by making vows, making connections, excuse me, making vows, we become a, a different species of being pseudo-angels, spiritual men, men of interior life, what have you. The passage ends with the famous words, there's no way of telling people that they're all walking around shining like the sun. There are no strangers. The gate of heaven is everywhere. I will note again how different that is from an experience of heaven in the context of the mass, or for that matter, in the monastery chapel of the court of the queen of heaven. But I mostly want to underline those words. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation in a special world, the world of renunciation and supposed holiness. In that dream of separateness, he's describing an understanding of holiness that had animated his early life as a monk. It's an understanding of holiness primarily defined by ascetical self-denial. In its place would come an understanding of holiness based on compassionate solidarity with his fellow human beings. And so Merton came to see that the entire purpose of the monastic life, or any spiritual search for that matter, is to achieve this vision, this awakening from a dream of separateness, to realize our underlying oneness, our unity, and what he called a hidden wholeness. No doubt this marked a turning point in his evolution as a monk. For years, Merton had devoted creative thought to the meaning of monastic and contemplative life. But from this point on, he became increasingly concerned with making connections between the monastery and the wider world. His writing assumed a more ecumenical and compassionate tone. Reading his old writing, he observed, I cannot go back to the earlier fervor or the asceticism that accompanied it. The new fervor will be rooted not in asceticism, but in humanism. For Merton, it was a kind of rebirth. Quote, I am finally Coming out of the chrysalis, he writes, now I face the pain and struggle of fighting my way into something new and much bigger. I must see and embrace God in the whole world. This increasing openness was also reflected in his writing on holiness. Previously enthralled to a dream of separateness and supposed holiness, he had held up the monastery as an ideal arena for achieving sanctity in new seats of contemplation. He elaborated on his earlier intuition that being a saint is a matter of being what God intended us to be. The pale flowers of the dogwood outside this window are saints, he wrote. The lakes hidden among the hills are saints. And the sea, too, is a saint who praises God without interruption in her majestic dance. And what about human beings for whom the problem of sanctity is a little more complicated? 
For me, sanctity consists in being myself, he wrote. For me to be a saint means to be myself. Therefore, the problem of sanctity and salvation is in fact the problem of finding out who I am and of discovering my true self. Another way of putting this would be in terms of abandoning the false self, the mask we present to the world and to ourselves. The whole journey of Thomas Merton up to this point could be seen as a series of putting off masks to the bad boy, the sophisticated 20th century man, the good Catholic, the perfect monk, to become his true saint, the saint, as Robert Lacks had put it, that God created him to be. But it was the same challenge for everyone. The path to sanctity for Thomas Merton, the monk, was not really so very different from the path of every other person in the world. Suddenly he began reaching out to an ever-widened circle of correspondence, including the Russian novelist Boris Pasternak, the Polish intellectual Czesław Milos, the Zen master D.T. Suzuki, the beat poet Lawrence Ferlinghetti, Rabbi Abraham Heschel, and Dorothy Day, founder of the pacifist Catholic worker movement in New York City. Writing to Dorothy Day, he offered wholehearted support for her brave acts of civil disobedience against compulsory civil defense drills in New York agreeing with her that these drills were really rehearsals for doomsday. As for his own writing, he noted in a letter to her, I don't feel that I can in conscience at a time like this go on writing just about things like meditation. I cannot just bury my head in a lot of rather tiny and secondary monastic studies either. I think I have to face the big issues, the life and death issues. And this is what everyone is afraid of. Along with his writings on prayer and spirituality, he began to write prophetic essays on the big issues, particularly the Cold War atmosphere of fear, the threat of nuclear war, many of these articles published in The Catholic Worker. In reflections on the mentality of Adolf Eichmann, one of the architects of the Holocaust, Merton was struck by the determination of psychiatrists who examined him that Eichmann was totally sane. Applying that standard to the work of nuclear war planners, Merton considered that we were living in a time when perfectly sane men, following the dictates of reason and logic, were capable of engineering the destruction of the earth. In such a time, what was needed were men and women of imagination, poets, rebels, prophets, and yes, monks, who could pierce the shell of functional logic to act on the basis of a deeper spiritual wisdom and share that vision with others. The social crises that Merton addressed, he believed, were ultimately spiritual issues. They were rooted in a distorted spiritual vision in which we failed to recognize our underlying oneness. This was the vision that underlay his mystical epiphany at Fourth and Walnut, referring to the people he saw in the streets he had written. If only they could see themselves as they really are, if only we could see each other that way all the time, there would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. In 1963, Merton published Life and Holiness, his most sustained treatment on the theme of sanctity, mostly based on essays written previously. In the spirit of Pope John XXIII, he wrote that, quote, Christian holiness in our age means more than ever the awareness of our common responsibility to cooperate with the mysterious designs of God for the human race. An undertaking in collaboration, quote, not only with the authorities of the church, but all men of goodwill who are sincerely working for the temporal and spiritual good of the human race. The main point of the book is to argue that 
A saint is not some perfect creature, but a fully human being illuminated by the love of God. The saint, he wrote, quote, wants to be simply a window through God's mercy, shines on the world, and for this he strives to be holy. He strives to practice virtue heroically, not in order to be known as a virtuous and holy man, but in order that the goodness of God may never be obscured by any selfish act of his. In some ways, this is a transitional book. Of course, Merck continued to write and publish about monastic themes, but this is one of the last books in which he set out to write what could be called a devotional book, primarily for Catholics. In subsequent years, he would tend to shy away from talk about sanctity. Perhaps that word carried too much baggage, conjuring inescapable associations that were increasingly remote from the challenges he was confronting. As he wrote in his journal in 1962, it may happen or it may not, that what God demands of me may make me look less perfect to others, that it may rob me of their support, their affection, their respect. To become a saint, therefore, may mean the anguish of looking like, in a real sense, being a sinner, an outcast. It may mean apparent conflict with certain standards, which may be wrongly understood by me or by others or by all of us. The thing he said is to cling to God's will and truth in their purity and try to be sincere and to act in all things out of genuine love insofar as I can. As he anticipated, not everyone was happy with this new Thomas Merton. They preferred, quote, the official voice of Trappist silence, the monk with his hood up and his back to the camera, brooding over the waters of an artificial lake. <laughs> the new Merton, he wrote, quote, was not the petulant and uncanonizable modern Jerome who never got over the fact that he could give up beer. To this he added, words intended to shock his pious devotees. I drink beer whenever I can lay my hands on any. I love beer. <laughs> By that very fact, the world. In a surprising homage to Merton, Judge Kavanaugh paraphrased those words. protest of life itself, of 
humanity itself, of love. He is an artist, a contemplative, a defender of spiritual values, a symbol of freedom and creativity in the midst of an alienated world. Merton's fascination with the question of human authenticity is also reflected in his study of Albert Camus, the subject of no fewer than seven essays, and particularly his novel, The Play. Camus' hero is again not a traditional saint or even a Christian who settles for pious answers, but a man who invests all his efforts in fighting the play, in affirming human values against the forces of cruelty and destruction. And of course, he writes about the absurdist play by Eugene Ionesco, in which a man becomes aware that his neighbors are steadily being transformed into rhinoceroses. All of these stories and the heroes that Merton held out represent a kind of holiness particularly relevant to the needs of today. And by that I mean literally today, in 2019. They embody an affirmation of human and spiritual values, a commitment to truth, compassion, and freedom, a determination to stand up for the universal conscience against the mass mind in a time when our culture, our government, and institutions of society seem gradually to take on the features of the rhinoceros. In his letter to an innocent bystander, Merton says, our vocation in such a time is, quote, to do what the child did and keep on saying that the king is naked at the cost of being considered a criminal. Like Pasternak, Merton was forbidden by the censors of his order to write on topics of extreme importance to him, namely war and peace. Like an Eastern Bloc dissident, he resorted to distributing his books in mimeographed Samizdat editions. Eventually, the censorship was lifted and he resumed his writing on topical issues, including the struggle against racism, what he called the overwhelming atrocity of the Vietnam War. He felt he was compelled by his vocation and his love for the world to take a prophetic stance, to criticize its spiritual delusions, and to struggle in collaboration with like-minded spiritual seekers, quote, to make the world better, more free, more just, more livable, more human. While many of Merton's readers wished he would stick with his old writings on the liturgy and prayer, there were new friends who wondered if his life of prayer and solitude wasn't a cop-out from the more relevant action in the streets. For Merton, this never really posed a serious temptation. In fact, his increasing engagement with the world outside the monastery was accompanied by a deeper call to solitude. Monks in the Benedictine tradition, including Trappists like Merton, take a vow of what is called stability. In a literal sense, it's a vow to remain in the monastery to which they are attached. It's a commitment not to run away when disturbing has its roots inside. If you leave, you'll just take it with you somewhere else. But there's a dip, different, deeper principle involved in just staying poor. Complementing the vow of stability is a second Benedictine principle called conversatio morum, literally the conversion of manners. Essentially it refers to the ongoing process of growth and spiritual maturity, of ongoing metanoia or conversion of going deeper into the heart of your vocation. The task of becoming a monk doesn't end when you take your vows. It's an ongoing journey that lasts a lifetime. 
These two monastic principles, stability and conversion, were the two poles around which Merton's vocation oscillated. There's no doubt that for Thomas Merton, the vow of stability was a particular challenge. In his early book, The Sign of Jonas, he describes stability as the belly of the whale, the mysterious paradox through which, like the prophet Jonah, he was being carried to his ultimate destination. Though his early monastic writings describe a feeling of giddy homecoming, his later journals tell a different story. Irritation with the banal business operations of the monastery, conflicts with his abbot, frustrations with a religious system that seemed determined to stifle his yearnings for a life of solitary prayer. In his early years, he was beset by the notion of joining a purer order like the Carthusians or the Camaldolese. This later gave way to fantasies fleeing to a hermitage or a community in Mexico, Nicaragua, Chile, the Virgin Islands, New Mexico, or Alaska, seemingly anywhere but Gethsemane. Inevitably, these plans were quashed by his superiors, if they had not already been replaced by newer schemes. In light of such first stage frustrations, he could write, I think the monastic life as we live it here warps people. It kills their spirit. It reduces them to something less than human. He proclaims to his journal, it is intolerable to have to spend my life contributing to the maintenance of this illusion. The illusion of the great, gay, joyous, happy, optimistic, Jesus-loving, 100% American Krampus Monastery. <laughs> At the time of writing this, you will call Merton was the novice master. <laughs> Merton realized that he didn't need to leave Gethsemane. What he really wanted was greater interior space to define the meaning of his contemplative vocation. It was a call not to leave the monastery, but to rediscover its inner meaning. It does not much matter where you are as long as you can be at peace about it and live your life. The place certainly will not live my life for me. I have to live it for myself. Where would he find the solitude he sought? Here or there makes no difference. Somewhere, nowhere, beyond all where, solitude outside geography or in it, no matter. At this point, after years of clamoring for a more solitary life, Merton was given permission to live in a simple hermitage on the monastery grounds, a situation that proved conducive both to prayer and creative work. Happily, he wrote of, quote, the sense of a journey ended, of a wandering at an end. The first time in my life I ever really felt that I had come home and that my roaming and looking were ended. Note to reader. This was actually not the first time he felt this, and it wouldn't be the last. In the pure silence and solitude of his hermitage, Merton felt he was making his own kind of protest against a world in which communications had been replaced by party platforms, advertising slogans, in which time and existence itself were metered out weighed for their productive value. In an ironic piece, a signed confession against, of crimes against the state, he wrote, my very experience, existence, is an admission of guilt. The very thought of a person like me are crimes against the state. All I have to do is think, and immediately I become guilty. <laughs> Going on, he added, I confess that I am sitting under a pine tree, doing absolutely nothing. I have done nothing for one hour and firmly intend to do nothing for an indefinite period. I have taken my shoes off. I confess that I've been listening to a mockingbird. Yes, I admit it's a mockingbird. This kind of thing goes on all the time, wherever I am. I find myself. 
center of reactionary plots like this one. <laughs> As a spiritual explorer, you felt a special connection with the Desert Fathers of the 4th century, who had left the comforts and compromises of the supposedly Christian world for the solitude of the wilderness. In words that really applied to himself, he wrote, What the Desert Fathers sought most of all was their own true self in Christ. And in order to do this, they had to reject completely the false, formal self fabricated under social compulsion in the world. They sought a way to God that was uncharted and freely chosen, not inherited from others who had mapped it out beforehand. We need to learn from these men of the fourth century how to ignore prejudice, defy compulsion, and strike out fearlessly into the unknown. Merton himself, of course, was seeking a way to God that was uncharted and freely chosen and not inherited from others who had mapped it out beforehand. Unfortunately, there are risks to be faced by those who travel without maps. The solitary desert explorers whom Merton admired faced many such perils in the form of temptations, and the same was true for Merton. It was soon after settling into his hermitage that he faced his own final and most difficult temptation, falling in love and conducting a secret affair with a young nurse who he had been in the hospital in Louisville. This episode, which lasted for several months, is described in intimate detail in volume six of his published journals, a story that's too complicated to summarize adequately. But suffice to say that in this affair, Merton experienced a liberating sense of his capacity to love and receive love. His journal is by turns deeply moving, heartbreaking, and exasperating. Some, of some have romanticized the episode, feeling that he should have, as one of his poet friends put it, followed the ecstasy right out of the monastery. And that was a serious option. But what was not an option was to have it both ways, to suppose that there was some way of being both a hermit and a lover. What was at stake was not simply the violation of his monastic vows, but a kind of doubleness and lack of integrity. What do I fear most? Forgetting and ignorance of the inmost truth of my being. To forget who I am. To be lost for what I'm not. To fail my own inner truth. To get carried away in what's not true to me. When he was honest with himself, he realized he was ultimately wedded to his vocation to solitude. Regarding his vows, he wrote, I cannot be true to myself if I'm not true to so deep a commitment. He came to the conclusion that his vocation was not just for himself, but that it meant something to the rest of the world. Vocation is more than a matter of just being in a certain place and wearing a certain kind of costume. There are too many people in the world who rely on the fact that I'm serious about deepening an inner dimension of experience, and they desire, and they desire what is close to them, and it is not close to me. There's a gift that has been given for me, not for myself, but for everyone. I cannot let it be squandered, dissipated foolishly. It would be criminal to do so. In effect, he returned to the idea that first attracted him to the abbey, that the monastery was in some sense the axis mundi, that the monks were in some way, with their prayers and their faithfulness, keeping the world turning. But now he was understanding faithfulness, or the call to holiness, not just in terms of an outward form or a particular setting, but in terms of the deepest core of himself. The difference suggested that this was not some special vocation for Trappist monks. Wherever people did this, wherever they were, 
faithful to their true selves, they were the axis mundi, in standing up for peace and against lies, and the integrity of their witness, in creating something beautiful and true, and their loving service of their neighbors. Like the pale flowers in the dogwood or the lakes hidden in the hills, they were saints, they were praising God by being true to their authentic selves. For some, this might be in a soup kitchen or a studio or a marriage or a prison cell. For him, it was to be in his hermitage. On September 10th, 1966, he signed a short formula in which he committed himself, quote, to live in solitude for the rest of my life. Nevertheless, he continued to be carried toward his true destiny in the belly of a paradox, traveling without maps, stumbling in the dark, trusting that he was being guided toward his true home. In 1968, the last year of his life, a more flexible habit permitted him at last to venture forth, and he made several short, unpublicized trips before accepting an invitation to address the International Conference of Christian Monks in Bangkok. Merton was particularly excited about the prospect of exploring his deep interest in Eastern spirituality. In this respect, as his journals show, the trip marked a new breakthrough, another encounter with the gate of heaven that's everywhere. He met with Buddhist and Hindu monks in India. He had several significant meetings with the Dalai Lama. But there was still a final epiphany. In Ceylon, one week before his death, in the presence of the enormous statues of the reclining, actually dying Buddha in Polonaruba, he was, quote, suddenly, almost forcibly, jerked clean out of the habitual half-tied vision of things, and an inner clearance, clarity, as if exploding from the rocks themselves became evident obvious. Everything is emptiness, and everything is compassion. It would mark the third and final epiphany described in Merton's journals, the first in the church in Havana with its reference to thunderbolts and lightning presaged his vocation to the monastery. His experience of heaven right there in the mass reflected a conception of holiness set apart from the world in a special religious or specifically Catholic context. In the second on 4th and Walnut in the middle of the secular city, he emerged from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation in a special world, the world of renunciation and supposed holiness. The experience that the gate of heaven is everywhere, presaged a move to a new phase, defined not by asceticism, but by Christian humanism, an engagement with the ordinary world of human beings. In Ceylon, he is, quote, suddenly, almost forcibly jerked out of a dualistic conception that divides reality in any way. The very rocks cry out. The rock, all matter, all life is charged with dharmakaya, a term that refers to the ultimate, inconceivable reality of it, out of which a Buddha is the manifestation. Everything is emptiness, everything is compassion. Each of these experiences put him in the presence of a kind of ultimate reality, an experience of underlying unity, wholeness, holiness, an intimation of heaven. But they also represent a widening spiral of consciousness from the church to the city to the cosmos itself that signals a new chapter in his spiritual journey. And what did this final epiphany presage? In his journal, as he embarked on this Asian journey, he had written, May I not come back without having settled the great affair and found also the great compassion. I'm going home 
to the home where I've never been in this body. Note to reader, this was the truth. Right in the days after his experience in Ceylon, he described this as the culmination of his Asian pilgrimage. <laughs> Cuba pilgrimage one-tenth, pilgrimage nine-tenths vacation. I think he reversed the proportions here. I mean, I know and I've seen what I was obscurely looking for. And perhaps it was something more. In his journal, Merton had described a curious dream about Kanchenjunga, one of the holy mountains in the Himalayas. In his dream, the mountain was pure white, and he saw its beauty and purity. But he heard a voice telling him, there's another side of the mountain, he reflected. There's another side of Kanchenjunga, and of every mountain, the side that has never been photographed and turned into postcards. That's the only side worth seeing. A week later, following his epiphany in Ceylon on December 10th, a short while after delivering his talk in Bangkok, Merton was found dead in his room. In this talk, in the last hour of his life, he spoke significantly of the monastic principle of conversatio morum, calling it the most mysterious and yet the most essential of all monastic vows. He interpreted it as, quote, a commitment to total inner transformation of one sort or another commitment to become a completely new man. It seems to me that this could be regarded as the end of the monastic life, and that no matter where one attempts to do this, that, that remains the essential thing. In the last moments of his life, he was talking about that ongoing call to conversion, to transcend any fixed plane, to keep going all the way. In Merton's writings, there were many foreshadowings of his abrupt and mysterious exit. In his early journal, The Sign of Jonas, he concluded with a tour of the monastery during a nighttime fire watch, ending in the belfry, where he imagines his hand on the door, quote, through which I see the heavens. The door swings out upon a vast sea of darkness and of prayer. Will it come like this, the moment of my death? Will you open a door upon the great forest and set my feet upon a ladder under the moon and take me out among the stars? So on December 10th, the anniversary of his arrival at Gethsemane, 27 years before, the gate of heaven swung open for Merton and he returned to the home he had never known in this body. As I began these remarks, I mentioned the two questions that were put to me by a class of high school students. First, do I think Thomas Merton will be canonized and an official Catholic saint? And my answer, I think the odds are slim. Some years ago, as you may recall, the U.S. bishops took pains to remove his name from a proposed list of exemplary American Catholics to be included in a national catechism for young adults. Ostensibly, this was based on their doubt that young people know much about him, with the implication being the less they know, the better. <laughs> Secondarily, according to the then-Bishop World, there was the concern that we don't know all the details of the searching at the end of his life. Sic finis libri non finis corendi indeed. Herein is the book, but not the searching. More than 50 years after his death, it seems that Burton's search continues with no end to the questions about the searching. It's hard to pin him down. He remains a moving target. As he wrote in his journal, my ideas are always changing, always moving around one center, always seeing the center from somewhere else. I will always be accused of inconsistencies. I will no longer be there to hear the accusations. 
<laughs> the church prefers its saints to fit into a more conventional mold. Merton, for all his obedience, submission to authority over many years, still makes some people nervous. Though totally rooted in his Catholic faith and his priesthood, Merton seemed always free to burst through neat official boundaries, resisting efforts to pin him down, box him in, or use him as a poster boy for any cause or institution. Maybe that makes sense. As he himself once wrote, perhaps with a dose of self-justification, one of the first signs of a saint may well be the fact that many people do not know what to make of him. In fact, they're not sure whether he is crazy or only proud. He cannot seem to make, up his, make his life fit in with the books. Then there's the question, should Merton be canonized? And perhaps my answer will come as a surprise. I would again say, probably not. The process of canonization is a function of the Catholic Church. It's a kind of imprimatur on the life of a holy servant of God. That brings to mind Merton's reaction before his conversion when he discovered an imprimatur on the copyright page of Etienne Gilson's The Life Spirit of Medieval Philosophy and was so horrified that he felt impulse to toss it out the window. I've supported the canonization of figures like Oscar Romero and Franz Eckerstadter. I actually serve on the Archdiocesan Commission preparing the cause of Dorothy Day. I have nothing against canonization. And yet, I can't but think that such a process would interfere with the particular mold of holiness, model of holiness that Merton represented, and therefore impede his actual ongoing mission. It doesn't much matter whether Merton would want or expect to be included in a list of exemplary Catholics or held up as a model of anything, whether a permanent writer or a bongo player. But his greatest desire was always to be a man on the margins, in solidarity with all those others on the margins, the rebels and prophets, the outliers and misfits, the solitary explorers. I'm not entirely sure this particular model of faithfulness is best served by being given an imprimatur, by becoming St. Thomas Merton. And yet in his address to the U.S. Congress in 2015, Pope Francis cited Thomas Merton among the four great Americans, including Lincoln, Martin Luther King, and Dorothy Day, whose dreams formed the basis of his speech. Of Merton, he said, he remains a source of spiritual inspiration and a guide for many people. Notably, the Pope singled out for special attention exactly the aspects of Merton that caused the most controversy in his life and apparently after his death. Merton was above all a man of prayer, a thinker who challenged the certitudes of his time and opened new horizons for souls and for the church. He was also a man of dialogue, a promoter of peace between peoples and religions. Those familiar with thinking of Pope Francis know that certitude is not a positive as he said, our life is not given to us like an opera libretto, in which all is written down, but it means going, walking, doing, searching, seeing. We must enter into the adventure of the quest for meeting God. We must let God search and encounter us. God is encountered walking along the path. To speak of Merton as a saint, you have to ask, well, when? The Merton of the Seven Story Mountain? Of Sign of Jonas, the, the Merton who wrote all these scandalous things in his journals, who wrote the essays about racism and, and peace, the man of dialogue with other faiths, the man who recorded his inner struggles, or is this medal of holiness embodied in that 
whole journey itself in a way that can't easily be pinned down and perhaps is his greatest gift to us. He speaks to us who are not monks, setting out the challenge to keep listening and responding to the voice that calls us to go deeper, farther into the heart of our vocation, to be our true selves, to respond as authentic human beings in face of our moment in history, to be the particular saint that God created us to be. He let go of his possessions, his ego, his certainty, and even a spurious kind of supposed holiness until he came to rest in God's emptiness and compassion. As he wrote, his path to sanctity would be a special vocation, not just to be a monk, but a writing monk who courageously put down on paper the story of what he was becoming, where he was going, all the false leads, confusion, and dead ends along the way, and where he was being called. As he discerned in 1949, it sounds simple, but it was not an easy vocation. In 1967, responding to an indirect request from Pope Paul VI for a letter on the contemplative life, Merton addressed his brothers in the world as one sinner to another. My brother, my sister, perhaps in my solitude I have become as it were an explorer before you, a searcher in realms which you are not able to visit. What have you discovered? I have learned to rejoice that Jesus is in the world and people who know him not, that he has at work with them when they think themselves far from him. And it is my joy to tell you to hope, hope not because you think you can become good, but because God loves us irrespective of our merits, and whatever is good in us comes from his love, not from our doing. The contemplative, you wrote, is not the man who has fiery visions of the cherubim carrying God on their imagined chariot, but simply he who has risked his mind in the desert beyond language and beyond ideas where God is encountered in the nakedness of pure trust. God loves you, is present to you, lives in you, dwells in you, calls you, saves you, and offers you an understanding and light which are like nothing you've ever found in books or heard in sermons. Merton, the consummate spiritual explorer, never ceased in the quest to know God and to know himself, to grow in the direction of a truth beyond words and images, and to report back on what he had discovered. His message was ultimately rooted in his own spiritual inner journey. As the Pope writes, God has encountered walking along the path. And sometimes, as Merton showed, we must walk that path without maps. But in his own struggle to be faithful, he opened paths. And he's enabled many other spiritual explorers to live with greater compassion, courage, and integrity. Not to be more like Thomas Merton, but to be the saint they were created to be and thus to find their own way to heaven. And through his writings, he cast seeds of contemplation and communion that continue to bear fruit in diverse and unexpected places. I'll end with the words with which Merton concluded his letters, his letter to his brothers and sisters in the world. Such are the few ideas I have had, written in haste. So much more will be said, so much better by others. Thank you.